Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 21st of February, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott and our very own Katie Joe. Uh, OK, so we'll get straight on with Ukraine and uh, we're going to kick off with uh, with Boris at the Munich Security Conference. But before he got there, he did a, a little interview with uh, Sophie Rayworth, which was played out on the BBC yesterday morning. And if anybody was in any doubt that Boris is nuts, uh, well, let's have a look at this. I'm afraid that that is what the evidence points to, Sophie, and there's no uh, burnishing it, there's no hiding it. The, the fact is that all the signs are that the, the plan uh, has already, in, in some senses, begun. That's what uh, our, our American friends think. And uh, you're seeing these provocations now in, in Donbass. You're starting to see this, uh, these explosions and so on that we've, we've been warning about for a, for a long time. And uh, I'm afraid to say that the, the plan that we're seeing is for something that could be really the, the biggest war in Europe since 1945, in, just in terms of sheer scale. Uh, you're looking at um, uh, not just an invasion uh, through the east, through the, through the Donbass, but uh, according to the intelligence, intelligence that we're seeing coming down from the north, down from Belarus and actually encircling uh, Kiev itself, as, uh, as, as Joe Biden uh, explained to a lot of us last night. And, you know, I think people need to understand the, the sheer cost in human life that that could entail, uh, not just for Ukrainians, but also for, for Russians and for, for young Russians. And that's, that was the point that I was trying to make uh, earlier on in my speech today. President I get the feeling that was the first time you've seen that, Brian, and uh, we should let everybody know that you were actually wetting yourself there. Well, I'm looking at that man. I'm looking at the fact that he can't get himself up in the morning and groom himself to an acceptable standard for the nation. So he's sitting there looking like I'm going to call him a toilet brush because it's the best description I can find this morning. And then he is making up a story, as we will see as today's UK column news on the Ukraine unfolds. He's making up a story about what is supposedly happening in the Ukraine. And he's fluffing his words because nothing coming out of his mouth is, is true. Uh, well, let's put the plan on screen because this is what the Ministry of De Defence pushed out a couple of days ago. Uh, David, uh, I'm sure you're impressed by this intelligence picture that we have on screen at the moment. It's, it's stunning. It's stunning and bold. And, and um, we've got um, World War II type maps of huge armoured thrusts. And of course, it's based on, as far as we can tell, um, imagination by some fevered people in uh, Western government. Yes, indeed. So let's, uh, let's move on then. Here's Boris uh, speaking at the Munich Security Conference, and it's just the same old thing. They, they went off to the Munich Security Conference at the weekend, and uh, the insanity continued there. He took the uh, ridiculous position that Russia is going to invade, even though it's got nothing to gain from invasion and everything to lose from a catastrophic venture. Uh, and uh, but you know they've got to they've got to engage in diplomacy. Uh, of course, Russia not engaging in diplomacy at the moment because they know exactly what's going on. So two OSCE meetings taking place over the last week and a half, uh, and uh, Russia didn't attend the, either of them. And the latest one being on Friday, 
afternoon. So uh, while he was there then, uh, Boris met with Olaf Scholz. Uh, uh, and of course, he had to meet with Olaf Scholz because Olaf Scholz is attempting to uh, cool things down, along with uh, Emmanuel Macron, surprisingly. But uh, he met with Olaf Scholz to try and get, uh, get him to turn around a little bit. Yeah, Mike, I, I'm just twitching here because I'm looking at this photograph of him. Look at Boris Johnson on the left representing this country. Um, in the military, it would be called a scram bag. That's the bag that all the lost items and the disheveled T-shirts that are found around the ship or a military base. He looks like a scram bag, and yet he's supposedly representing the country. He can't dress himself properly. How can he conduct politics properly? Yes, he went on and uh, met with uh, uh, Zelensky, of course, the uh, president of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, well, Zelensky went on to give a pretty pathetic speech at the... Uh, uh, Munich Security Conference, uh, begging for sympathy for Ukraine. Uh, but David, he was also using the appeasement language. So uh, what do attempts at appeasement lead to, he said, uh, as the question, why die for Danzig, turned into the need to die for Dunkirk and dozens of other cities in Europe and the world at the cost of tens of millions of lives, was what he was pumping out at the Munich Security Conference. And of course, where did he get this rhetoric from? Well, none other than Ben Wallace, there's a whiff of Munich in the air, as we reported, I think, a week ago. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But, uh, you know, you're talking about the, the intelligence map be, uh, being uh, sort of World War II uh, map-like and the, the rhetoric the same. The rhetoric's the same. It's a, it's a completely false comparison between Putin and Hitler uh, and to uh, Munich appeasement. It's... it's, it's, um, it's uh, it gets an emotional response, particularly from the British public, um, but it doesn't actually re reflect reality. Uh, also, Danzig, die for Danzig. Danzig is is Gdansk. That's in that's in Poland. We we did go to. We declared war. We weren't appeasing anybody at that point. We declared war for Danzig, which at that point was a German city. Um, and of course, with the Russians at that point siding with the Germans. Uh, when that happened, we couldn't actually do anything to help Poland. So we actually gave Poland a lot of encouragement and guarantees that were backed by no resolve at all. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, maybe that's uh, the only parallel that uh, re is reasonable to draw. But anyway, let's bring the uh, lovely Liz Truss on screen, because, uh, of course, uh, what was her attitude over the weekend down with Russia? Uh, but uh, there was a G7 uh, meeting of foreign ministers and they... Uh, produced a communique, which we'll talk about in a second. But what was she talking about? We need to prepare for a worst-case scenario and the worst-case scenario that could happen as early as next week. How many weeks have we been hearing this nonsense? It's going to be next week. It's going to be next week. Uh, the reality is that Russia does want to turn the clock back. They want to turn the clock back to the 1990s and before. In the last week alone, we've seen a doubling of disinformation and we've seen false flag operations in the Donbass region. Uh, yes, well, perhaps, but I'm not sure who's uh, actually carrying those out, Liz, was it you? Quite possibly. I'm afraid that uh, Russia has shown that they are not serious about diplomacy, she said. So anyway, the G7 foreign ministers uh, decided that they would uh, issue a joint statement. Uh, and uh, they said that uh, Russia should be in no doubt that any future military aggression against Ukraine will have massive consequences, including financial and economic sanctions on a wide array of sectoral and individual targets uh, that would impose severe and unprecedented costs on the Russian economy. It's, it's just pathetic. It doesn't get any better with uh, Ursula von der Leyen either. The Kremlin's dangerous thinking when it comes straight, which comes straight out of a dark past, may cost 
Russia a prosperous future. In case that Russia strikes, we'll limit access to the financial markets for the Russian economy and oppose export controls that will stop the possibility of Russia to modernize and diversify its economy. I mean, but, but Russia's used all of the restrictions to date in order to strengthen its own country. The economic base, the production, yes. um, industry, innovation has all been strengthened because the Russians have simply said, well, you can put on these sanctions, but we're going to carry on. Yes. So, David, let's move on to uh, uh, David Stockman's Contra Corner. Yes, Stock David Stockman here, economist, looking at the history of the Ukraine. Uh, this map you see here is an outline of Ukraine in green. And you see that the eastern part of it, that, that, was, it, that was part of Russia uh, as far back as the 17th century. Uh, large sections were uh, acquired by Russia in 1667. And between 1772 uh, and 1795, the Crimea was acquired by Russia 1768-1792. Um, and uh, in fact, the western part was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the idea that these borders are, you, you know, unique and, and must, not be, must not be varied, it starts to look a little bit odd. And this next map illustrates the point with more recent history. Um, so that you've got the, the dark blue area here, Ukrainian territory in 1654, um, and then uh, added by the Russian Tsars between 1654 and 1917 in green, added by Lenin in 1922 is all the pink bit. Uh, by Stalin in 1939-45 is, is the blue bit. Uh, that used to be Austria. And by Khrushchev, Crimea, only in 1954 was the Crimea, which had been part of Russia since 1792, was that added to the Ukraine. But those, those borders cannot be varied. This is uh, a matter of the inviolability of international law. This is, uh, this is how we resist Hitler, by, by defending these borders. Uh, and precisely these, and they must not vary at all at any point. Uh, now, so to come to the to come to the ridiculous nature of the uh, UK reporting, UK mainstream press reporting on this, and more of that shortly. Here we have the Express. Um, I, I was just astonished by this this headline: "Nuclear missile warning: RAF fears UK early warning systems thwarted during the Russia crisis." Royal Air Force expressed concerns that UK's early warning systems would be disrupted in the event of a nuclear missile launch. How frightened are we? This is all about, all about fear generation. But when you look at the substance of it, the RAF is concerned over the rollout of new smart meters that work on similar frequencies to the early warning system for missiles and run the risk of interference. This comes as an expert warned that Russia is an expert warned. There we go. That Russia is developing a superweapon in the form of a nuclear-powered cruise missile. As a result of these concerns, energy bosses have been forced to halt installation <laughs> across parts of Yorkshire. This is a non-story. The headline says the Russians are going to nuke us, and there's nothing we can do about it. And when you read on, it's it's it's, it's garbage. It's incredible. Uh, in the same article. Uh, they showed this uh, NATO forces line up against Russia. So again, beating the drums of war here. And if you if you go in to look at each of these little flags and the forces that are stationed there, they are, with the exceptions of, of the 200,000 troops that are in the Ukrainian army, they are very small contingents. Um, and this is more uh, virtual than, um, than real. Um, and they do make the mistake that they colour in the Ukraine as part as though it's still part of um, they call it in the Crimea 
Crimea as though it's still part of the Ukraine, and they colour in Belarus uh, as though it's not allied with Russia. So whoever came up with that map uh, doesn't really know their subject matter very well at all. Uh, now we have here uh, the uh, neocon war hawk, Bill Crystal. He's, he's uh, encouraging things along. Uh, President Zelensky writes, speaking at the Munich Security Conference, quote, there is no such thing as it's not my war in the 21st century. This is not about war in Ukraine, it's about war in Europe. Action is needed. The world needs this action, not just Ukraine. So this is the, the neocon approach. So we know what to think of that, I suspect. And meanwhile, for sanity, we have to go to the Russian news agency TASS, uh, who report uh, the hilarity all of this has been greeted with in Russia. Uh, when our upcoming in when's our upcoming invasions? I'd like to plan my vacation. Diplomat mocks the US and UK media. Um, so this is um, Maria uh, Zakharova. Zakharova. Yeah. Um, Foreign Ministry spokeswoman uh, jokingly asked British and American media outlets to release a schedule of Russia's upcoming invasions of the Ukraine for the current year. I'd like to request the US and British disinformation, Bloomberg, the New York Times and Sun media outlets to publish the schedule for our upcoming invasions for the year. I'd like to plan my vacation. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that actually uh, is, is the best response I've seen because it is completely uh, risible. And, and David, the, the quality of that lady when she's been speaking about foreign policy issues for Russia is so far beyond Liz Truss. It, it's, there's just no, con no comparison between those, those two women. The, the Russian lady, clearly an intellect, understands her subject, knows which country she's in. And uh, what have we got? We've got a colleague of Boris Johnson. But, you know, at, at the same time, we, we are we are sort of making fun of this in, in, to a certain degree uh, because it is so risible, David. It's so it's just so nuts, but it's also slightly dangerous. Oh, it's, it's intensely dangerous right? because we do have a low grade guerrilla war in the east of the Ukraine. Uh, that's always going to be uh, susceptible to given reasons to uh, for, for people to be angry or for given casualties or, or, or at least loud explosions. So we've got that going on. Uh, we've got the nonsense over the Crimea. Um, and we've got this drumbeat of war from the West, which has now been going on for months. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly dangerous. Uh, it's only, I, I suspect, the common sense of, it would appear, both the Ukrainian government and the Russian government that's keeping things sensible. It's certainly not, there's certainly not peace and tranquility being promoted by the, by the governments in uh, America and Western Europe. Yes. Um, okay, now uh, the issue of the um, UK, Poland and Ukraine trilateral, uh, which we talked about on Friday. Well, in fact, you broke the story, I think, two weeks ago uh, originally, but uh, let's put the map back on screen. Uh, so we talked about this on Friday. Uh, you wanted to cover a bit more on it. Well, yes, it's the press coverage that, that struck me about this. So this is the map we showed two weeks ago. The um, London-based Council on Geostrategy basically announced our foreign policy that we were having a triple alliance with Ukraine and Poland. And for a little while, nothing happened. And as you reported uh, on Friday, on the 17th of February, 
uh, there was a press release uh, from Elizabeth Truss, and this said that uh, th there's going to be this uh, a, a statement on uh, on work to build resilience in the Ukraine, and this was involving Poland, Ukraine, and Britain, um, and it was a tr it's going to be a trilateral memorandum of cooperation. Whatever that specifically means, we don't really know the details yet, and <coughs> perhaps we never will. Um, now, uh, I was looking at how this was being reported in the press. So, first of all, we've got the, the Foreign uh, Office of the Ukraine tweeting out about this to safeguard stability and build resilience in Ukraine, strengthening democracy at the frontier in Eastern Europe. So it's frontier now. Poland, the United Kingdom, Ukraine agreed to develop a trilateral memorandum of cooperation. So that's reporting the facts. That was nice of them. Now, if we go on to the press in the Ukraine, uh, they go a little further. Poland, U UK and Ukraine to form security alliance. So they're calling it specifically a security alliance. Um, and they quote uh, Ukraine's foreign minister, um, uh, uh, Kubela, uh, quote, Warsaw, Kiev, and London have not only a realistic awareness of security threats to Europe and a strategy to counter Russia's challenges, but also a great potential for tripartite cooperation in trade, investment, energy, including renewables. By joining forces in the Atlantic, Baltic, and Black Sea, we are creating new opportunities for our countries and the region as a whole. So that's how they're seeing it. And I found many reports. Here's one. Right, I had to look up this newspaper to find out where it was. This is an Afghanistan newspaper. UK government and uh, Ukraine, UK and Poland officially formed security alliance. So the Afghan people know about this. Um, here we've got the People's Gazette. This is from Nigeria. Right, um, the government of Ukraine has entered into a new trilateral military alliance together with the United Kingdom and the Republic of Poland. The alliance is called a Trilateral Memorandum of Cooperation. So the Nigerian journalists are doing the job. I went to find this on the Times. It's not there. I looked in the BBC. I could find nothing. I looked in the Guardian. I could find nothing. UK Columns reporting it. We've entered into a tripartite alliance, which has got security and possibly military aspects, with a country that our own government are, is saying is about to be at war with Russia. And the press in the UK do not report the agreement. They do not report the treaty that we're entered into. There's nothing there. It's astonishing. It's the biggest abdication of responsibility by the mainstream media in this country I can remember by a long way. Uh, well, that's true, David. But at the same time, uh, you think of the number of, uh, of bilateral and trilateral trilateral defence agreements that Britain has entered in the last 10 years and how many of them have actually had serious mainstream coverage. Lancaster House treaties didn't get serious mainstream coverage. Sandhurst treaties, well, they got a little bit, but not very much. Uh, the, the, the memorandum of understanding with Germans, the Polish, the Portuguese, the Italians, none of these bilateral and trilaterals got very much coverage at all, if any. Yet at the same time, I, I think I, I, at, at I, the same time, sorry, at the same time, that was being defined as being one of the main pillars of European Defence Union at the time. Yes, this is an important point you make. You're, you're quite right, Mike. Uh, but although it was important 
in terms of defence policy, it was not against the background of the country involved um, having been given wall-to-wall coverage that it would be in any day, any hour, involved in a, in a war with Russia. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, there's only one place to go after the report so far, and that's uh, to the BBC. So we're going to have a, a look at BBC reporting of Ukraine. Before I just get on to this uh, section and what you can see on screen at the moment, I'm going to say that we're getting emails from people in Ukraine saying, um, uh, can we show some more, um, uh, what's the word, sympathy for their plight? And I'm going to say to anybody who's listening or watching us from Ukraine, um, today that uh, this next section shows that we're absolutely looking out for the people of Ukraine and we certainly don't want to see any Ukrainians killed in a future war with Russia. So let's look at what the BBC is up to. This was a screenshot of their front page from earlier today and of course uh, it starts off with Covid but my eye caught this little article here which was about Biden agreeing in principle to a summit with Biden. I've never heard Biden speak in a coherent well I, I've never heard him discuss anything in a coherent way so I'm not sure he's capable of even speaking to Putin but this was the headline Biden agrees in principle to summit with Putin the meeting proposed by France will only take place if Russia does does not invade Ukraine, the US says. And then of course, the rest of it is all down here. Great big block of stuff to do with Ukraine. So this is the BBC using its 5 billion plus budget to ram home its propaganda to the UK and the world. Uh, let's put up part of the article that comes up of one of the ones from the bottom. Uh, Ukraine, how big is the Russian military buildup? And I'm going to say quite happily here, that nobody should trust a word the BBC is saying in its reports on Ukraine, uh, because we've got a, a lie uh, being conducted here of independent media reports from inside Ukraine. Now, we've had a few laughs so far in the um, UK column news. We're talking about serious subjects, but we're having a little bit of uh, black humour. Let's just bring in the way that the BBC has dealt with uh, the situation and of course we've seen these maps from um, from uh, Rosh, Roshan Consulting, they're based in Poland and the whole situation is brought down to these little red dots. Well I'd just like to show our audience that if you go and look at the BBC people that are producing the dotted uh, graphs, uh, this is one of the lead people, Sandra uh, Chilida. Um, she's apparently highly specialised in producing graphics but if you look at her own LinkedIn page, she's very big on, well, actually, it's a red pill, but I thought it looked remarkably similar to the red dots that she's so keen that are pushed in front of the UK uh, public in order to give them this, um, uh, what's the word, this twisted impression of what's actually happening in Ukraine. Where am I getting to? Well, I'm getting to this. We're back on our old friends, the BBC's claim charity, BBC Media Action, because if you go and look at this pernicious political charity, here is the evidence from state to modern public service broadcasting in Ukraine. And what's happening is that the old media systems in Ukraine are all being rebranded with the help of the BBC's political charity, BBC Media Action. So if we bring in part of the um, Headline here, meet Suspilny, 
it's a public, a rebranded modern broadcaster in Ukraine. So we are supposed to trust all of the news coming out of Ukraine at the moment as independent. But when we actually look at what's happening, it's the BBC that's driving the news that's coming out of Ukraine. So if we look at this in a bit more detail, this is the sort of thing that the BBC is talking about. The excitement was palpable when UAPBC's executives and board members gathered with ambassadors, dignitaries and representatives of BBC Media Action and our part partner, Deutsche Welle Academy. So we've got BBC Media Action, a supposed charity, working alongside the Germans in order to present a dynamic modern newsroom that will form a central hub for a, quote, rebranded public broadcaster. Rebranded, I'm going to suggest, means under the control of the BBC and the Germans, effectively. And then it goes on. The revolution of Maiden in 2014, just a few metres from where we're standing now, in many ways, this was the birth of free media in Ukraine. It became clear that a strong, independent public broadcaster was needed. Well, you can't let the BBC near a broadcaster and then call it independent. It's an oxymoron. But soon the new system was born, according to this part of BBC Media's action report. And it goes on with this. BBC Media Action joined the product pro project with UA BBC in 2017 with one objective, to help it, quote, revolutionise its news operation and design a newsroom that would cater to a wider audience with, quote, multimedia and multi-platform content that is trusted, impartial, informing and engaging. That cannot be true because the BBC has been in making this happen. And then we get the meat of it or part of it with funding from the European Commission working with Deutsche Welle Academy. BBC Media Action has supported the design and implementation of new flow, flow, sorry, workflows based on the news gathering approach used by the BBC, where the story is at the heart of a multimedia news operation. This approach shares stories internationally. Internally. So, uh, sorry, internally, so they can reach audiences more efficiently and effectively across different platforms. We're not into evidence and truth, we're into storytelling. And this is pretty blatant. And if we just take a little look at who's been helping to put this in place, well, here's Julie Boutros, the project manager for Eastern Europe. And just look what she's done. Worked with BBC Media Action since 2013, implementing a portfolio of media development projects for the Middle East, North Africa, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and managing grants funded by the European Union, Foreign Commonwealth Office, uh, and United Nations. So the key question here is, is she, is BBC Media Action independent, or is it simply doing the bidding of the grant givers? And if I still haven't captured our audience in Ukraine today, let's look at who is funding BBC Media Action. Uh, a very pale graph, so let's bring it up on screen so that we can see. Um, and this should be read in millions. They've put in an accountancy language, which is hundreds of thousands. We've got USAID at a million. We've got NORAD at 1.4 million. Bill and Melinda Gates at uh, one and a half million. Global Affairs Canada, United Nations Development, UK Department for International Development, 
uh, 2.7 million, UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, 7.6 million, Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, 3.4 million effectively, and the European Union, over 3 million. So this is not charitable work. This is politically political enabling. And what we've got now is the BBC in control of media inside Ukraine. So if you're part of a Ukrainian audience today, we're going to say to you, you need to wake up because it's going to be the BBC that will destroy your country as it's done with the UK. Yes, and so for example, if we take Syria as an example, when BBC Media Action went into Syria, they started uh, generating these media development programs. What they did effectively with others was to develop journalists within the country. And then when the war happened, those journalists trained by the BBC started feeding back a BBC narrative back into the UK because they were there uh, as uh, you know people with their with their, their, their feet on the ground. Uh, they know what's going on, but it was a Western narrative that was coming back into the UK as if it was from Syria, and that helped build the yeah. anti-Assad narrative. They've done the same uh, in Kazakhstan, other countries, and now they're doing that in. Uh, in Ukraine, but also let's not forget that uh, the other organization, apart from BBC Media Action, Deutsche Welle Academy, is also Thomson Reuters Foundation. They also do this media development work. Um, and uh, of course, we still have Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe in prison in Iran uh, because they accused her of effectively running this type of operation in Iran. Um, and uh, although uh, she and her, her husband vehemently deny any wrongdoing, uh, that was the Iranian allegation. Yeah. And of course, reinforced by Boris Johnson admitting that she was there to train journalists. Absolutely. And I just, I just wanted to add, Mike, um, if people just put BBC Media Action into the search box with a magnifying glass on the UK column website, up will come the articles demonstrating what BBC Media Action was doing, including in Kazakhstan, for example, where it felt that its objective was to get the banks operating properly and that people need to be taught that they needed credit cards. Well, in Ukraine, of course, you can see that BBC Media Action is going for the minds of the young people. They want to increase the gay agenda. They want to uh, in, in, increase heteronormativity. They are going, the BBC are going for the utter breakdown of traditional society in Ukraine. So I think the warning has gone out from the UK column today. If you're Ukrainian and you think that we've been um, too lenient with the Russian side, just be aware that what the West is doing inside your country. David. A couple of quick things. Those figures were from 2019-2020. I was just looking up the current ones, 2021. Uh, the UK uh, Foreign Office has increased its funding uh, from 7.6 uh, million to 9.9 .9 million. So uh, they are doing quite well. Also, they've been now funded by the Canadians, Global Affairs Canada, 2.4 million. Uh, and Mott uh, McDonald, uh, putting in a, a million pounds. That's a British engineering consultancy. So uh, the, 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 the Brave Lads are doing very well. If you go onto their website on the BBC, um, you can donate. They're looking for money and they've got a donate button. Um, and if you want to give them like £10 or something, they'd be very happy to have it. And if you give them £500, they'll, they can get an information hub in a refugee camp. So there you go. I, I can't say any more, really, because no. it's so blatant that what we've got, this is 
this is British soft power uh, being used via a charity, and to call it a charity is an utter disgrace. Um, well, let's uh, bring uh, welcome Kitty Joe onto the program. Kitty Joe, uh, in Canada, things have taken a, a turn for the worse. Yeah, like most people watching, I'm sure um, I've been on the edge of my seat the last couple of days um, watching Canada. Um, and I'd like to talk about the uh, Freedom Convoy leader, Tem, uh, Tom Mazzaro's press conference that he gave on Saturday afternoon. Um, he's been absolutely incredible giving press conferences over the last three weeks. Um, and it's really upsetting, actually, to see how upset he is and distressed he is. Um, he starts by reading uh, something that he'd read that morning, uh, written by a woman. I didn't quite catch where she was from in the video, um, but she, she'd adapted the famous uh, post-war poem, First They Came. And she wrote, first they came for the truckers and I did not speak out because I was not a trucker. Then they came for the donors to truckers and I did not speak out because I was not a donor to truckers. They came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Tom really had to uh, compose himself at this point and carry on. Um, and he talks how he personally witnessed the lady who was trampled. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen the video, um, but I would like to show it again. Um, I think we've got it there. Um, it's quite distressing to watch, actually. Um, have, you, have you got that video? Is it possible to watch? If not, I can just describe it. Shall I just carry on? Yeah. So basically, there's a there's a Mohawk woman. Um, Candace, sorry, Kitty Joe. Uh, sorry, I, I had myself muted. No, we do have that video clip. You did. Uh, Stephanie, you did. You had, yes, uh, Stephanie had that. Uh, just play that one for us. This is a grassroots movement, and others will fill their roles. Others have already filled their roles. People want. Sorry, is that the wrong one? That is, I yeah. can see it on the screen there, it's ready to come up, but oh, shall I okay. just talk about what happened? Yes, you tell us what happened, yes. Yeah, so so the, you can see there, there's the uh, Candice Ciro, who's a Mohawk woman. Um, she's elderly, uh, she has a walker, and she's holding a white flag. And um, before the police horses come, she's continually saying to the police, um, we're here for peace, love and happiness. Um, and as you can see there in the video, they completely trample over her and um, another gentleman. Um, it, the audio is really, really distressing to hear. People are screaming. Um, it's, it's, it's horrific to see. Um, and it, luckily, she is OK. We have seen a video of her saying, um, hold the line, people. She's all right, thankfully. Um, but it's absolutely horrendous uh, to watch. And what's even worse is that the chief of police, Steve Bell, has dismissed this incident as a fake and that it's been photoshopped. Um, and obviously the mainstream media are saying the same story. Um, so as you can see there, the CBC News, um, false trampling death rumours. I mean, obviously she, she hasn't died, but they're, they're, they're denying the trampling completely. Um, and they do say as well that the two people that were, were knocked over bounce back up again <laughs> straight away and carry on with the protest. Um, they absolutely do not. She's, as you, as you saw, she's, she's an elderly lady and has a walker. There's absolutely no way that she bounced back up again. Um, so yeah, more lies from the, uh, from the mainstream media. 
And carrying on with the conference, um, Tom goes on to say, it's been a dark day in our history where our prime minister would refuse dialogue and choose violence against its peace, uh, peaceful protesters. The mainstream media are portraying them as anti-government. And if you have been watching the conferences that Tom and the other organisers have given, you'll know that they've been pleading time and time again with the official Canadian government to talk and read their plan. You know, they haven't been anti-government at all whatsoever. Um, he says they're currently in shock um, and he says they're organising uh, legal counsel and support for those injured by the police brutality and those that are being arrested. Um, he said the demonstration has never been about COVID-19. It's about restrictions on personal autonomy. The infringement on our rights is now obvious. Um, three of the organisers have been arrested, Chris, Tamara and Danny, on petty counts of mischief and bank accounts of those that have dared to speak out have been frozen, including Tom's. Um, the, the conference is uh, including uh, question and answers is quite long, it's, it's about 45 minutes, uh, but I did want to play just a very short clip of, of, of the next part of the conference. It's incredibly moving and shows just how humble and egoless this man really, really is. This is a grassroots movement and others will fill their roles. Others have already filled their roles. People want a hero to rally around. There is no single person who leads this freedom convoy. This is ordinary Canadians who are asserting their rights. I'm certainly not a hero. I'm simply... a father. I never thought I'd see the day when law enforcement officers would be arresting citizens for the crime of exercising their charter rights and freedoms to free assembly and free speech. It remains to be seen if Canadian democracy can survive such an abuse of power. There are hundreds of police on Parliament Hill. Many are here in riot gear holding military assault rifles. There are armored vehicles and police transport buses. For what? We have no answer to that question. When someone held up their arms to protect against a baton being swung at their head, the Ottawa police claimed that their weapon was being reached for. Now they are claiming that not a single protester was trampled. I saw it myself. I was 10 feet away. Minutes after Tamara Litch crouched down to be in a picture with a little girl while exchanging hugs. Yeah, so, I mean, it's so distressing to watch it. Actually, if you watch the whole thing, it really, really does uh, move you to tears. Um, I know he doesn't want to be called a hero, but he is a hero. They're all heroes, all of the truckers, all of the protesters, all of the donators. Um, but him, to take on that responsibility, that he's taken on and it takes unbelievable courage and strength. Um, his words, um, is this a democracy? Is this Canada? 
Can you hear democracy's death note? It rings louder than the truckers' horns. Are the words that should be resonating around the world? Uh, sorry, um, Kitty Joe, and and uh, one of the things that's that's uh, I'd just like to get your thoughts on are because uh, because he's also obviously also getting and uh, the the people that are perceived as the organisers are also getting quite a bit of abuse from some uh, quarters, suggesting that they're controlled opposition and all this kind of thing. So so they've got that to deal with as well. Yeah, yeah, you can see actually in the question and answers, there are some people really trying to, um, you know, provoke him. Uh, they're, they're, they're asking questions about the GoFundMe, the money, um, which he said he's not there to talk about that. But they, yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to, um, yeah, get a reaction out of him. Um, he, he, none of them are are you know controlled opposition they if you've seen any of the um conferences that they've given together you will see exactly that these people it's, that it's all grassroots you know they are as he said they're, they're mums they're dads they're doctors they're scientists that just want to get the truth out there um and and stop this uh tyrannical control that um you know trudeau is now enforcing um they have uh, peacefully withdrawn from the streets of Ottawa. Um, he says there's nothing to be gained by being brutalised by the police. Uh, and he's, as he said there, his first-hand recolle uh, recollection of, of being on the front line with people trying to reason with the police, peaceful protesters singing, Oh Canada. And when they finished singing, he saw a woman shot in the face with pepper spray. Um, Canadians should be absolutely outraged. Um, he hasn't been arrested or criminally charged, and yet his bank account has been frozen. His, can his credit cards have been cancelled, and his spouse's credit score has dropped 109 points. She isn't even at the protests, and she doesn't even have his last name. This is criminal behaviour. Um, how can a federal government, without any due process, take away your assets and freeze your assets? He hasn't even been convicted of anything. It's it's absolutely insane. And as he says in the in the conference, how can I feed my children and pay my bills? Yeah. Um, it, it, it should provoke outrage. Just that in, in itself. You don't even have to be in support of the truckers. That behaviour from the government should be provoking absolute outrage across Canada. Um, there are Joe. a lot of politicians in support. Katie, Joe, if I, if I can just come in there, I'd just like to add that over the years, I've been asked on many occasions by people in this country why we've seen such a major change in the way police behave and what they're talking about is an incre increasingly brutal behaviour. There's only one answer mm. to that. It is the way the police are trained. And of course, yeah. we know that um, applied behavioural psychology has been unleashed on the police. Indeed, it's been unleashed on the military. Uh, but you've now got police who have been reframed to act in a brutal way. This is very clear from what's happening in Canada when somebody on a horse thinks that they need to trample on an elderly woman. There's something wrong in their minds. But of course, what has been unleashed on the police is political behavioural insights training to reframe them to believe that the public as a whole are the enemy of the police. It's uh, yeah. the pieces are all there when we search for the evidence and we start to put it together. The police are not all bad, but the training for the police, despicable.
absolutely i totally agree um and and i was i was looking at what other politicians were saying um about uh the events um from the police and the emergencies act that and I, i've got a, a quote there from um sharon stubbs who is the conservative mp for lakeland and uh this is in the calgary sun i just literally picked out this little bit because there's been so much talk of how peaceful it's been um, um, in Ottawa and how the crime rate has dropped massively, I think something like 90%. Um, and she says in this quote, she has a little apartment, 25 minute walk from the House of Commons. I'm a tough politician when I fight for my underdog constituents in the House of Commons, but I get a little chicken out there on the streets late at night. You know what the truth is? In the last six years, I have never felt safer on my walk home than in the last three weeks. Um, just sums it up perfectly, um, what everyone has been saying. Um, we have another quote as well. Oh, well, some, some actual uh, Facebook posts from Maxime Bernier. He's the leader of the PPC. Um, and he's there talking about the um, what Canada, this is literally what Canada looks like now. Um, I'm finding it hard to read that actually. Um, yeah, just let the effing mandates and restrictions uh, lift them and get back to normality. He's completely behind the truckers um, and knows exactly what's going on. Um, and then we also have Pierre Polieva, um, MP for Carlton, and he's yeah he's saying there again Conservatives say no to the Emergencies Act. They're not uh, supporting this whatsoever. Um, and he says about this, you know, this poor working uh, mum who, uh, she's a single mum, she gave $50 to the convoy when it was 100% legal. She hasn't participated in any other way. Her bank account has now been frozen. Um, this is who Tr Justin Trudeau is actually targeting with the Emergencies Act orders. Um, so lots of support from the opposition for the truckers and the movement. Uh, there's also a video from Andrew Shear that came out on Friday where he states um, conservatives are going to keep fighting against this abuse of power by Justin Trudeau. Um, you're there showing there the, um, the amazing um, uh, protesters on foot in Calgary. Uh, this, is, this is what's happened now since. They, they are not giving up. The Canadians are incredible. They are just insane. I so wish I was there. Um, look at them. Look at these beautiful maple flags, and you can just you can just feel the atmosphere. Their strength is wonderful. Um, so and yeah, the, the truckers yeah. apparently yeah are, are totally peaceful. They have been incredible in keeping that peaceful um, demeanor the whole way through. Uh, but apparently the convoy hasn't disappeared they've just relocated which is easily done when you've got wheels so they've gone to a few places apparently they're in quebec they're in toronto and they're in winnipeg um but overall 170 people have been arrested and dozens of vehicles have been towed and apparently ottawa's mayor jim watson said any vehicle seized during the police crackdown should be sold to cover the costs incurred by the city can you believe that the trucks, these trucks are people's livelihoods. They own these trucks. That's, that's their, you know, that's their absolute livelihood. It's incomprehensible that they could be doing this to their own people. Yes, brilliant. Okay, uh, David, uh, uh, let's move on uh, to your thoughts on this. You've got a video clip here uh, from one of the Canadian police briefings. 
Yes, this is a, um, a, a citizen journalist, an independent journalist, asked a good question of the uh, chief of police, and the answer is chilling. So I was in the crowd yesterday. Um, I was unfortunately uh, hit with some pepper spray. I just have a question. Uh, there's some video cameras that the police are using and uh, some news outlets are reporting that you're gathering intelligence with those cameras. Can you elaborate, like, if the protesters at this point uh, you know, uh, retreat and go home, uh, are they going to be getting sort of repercussions down the road? Or are you going to be sort of actively pursuing the people that you've been sort of documenting and filming who are still out there protesting? What are your plans after this, uh, after the protest is over? Thank you. It's a great question. And the simple answer is yes. If you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. We, this investigation will go on for months to come. It has many, many different streams, both from a federal uh, financial level, from a provincial licensing level, from a criminal code level, from a municipal breach of court order, breach of court injunction level. It will be a complicated and time consuming um, investigation that will go on for a period of time. You have my commitment that that investigation will continue and we will hold people accountable for taking our streets over. David, is this not exactly the threat that's being made against Russia? You do what we say or we'll uh, impose financial sanctions on you. Now that's being taken down to the individual level. You do what we say or, and if you dare to, to, to do something different, you'll be experiencing financial sanctions at the individual level? If you dare to stand against us, um, we will take each, various, each of the various arcane branches of the law and we will make sure that your, your life is ruined. And it doesn't matter what you actually do. It doesn't matter if it's, um, if it's, if it's criminal or not. It doesn't matter if it's, under the, if it's constitutional and it's absolutely correct under the law. We will find a way of making it illegal, and we will uh, then pursue you and destroy your life to the greatest extent possible because you have resisted our political will. That's what it is. That's not policing anymore. That's totalitarianism. Um, so what? Oh, yes, go ahead. So uh, how has this been responded to by the Canadian people? I picked up this tweet, which is rather lovely. Ottawa police tweet out. We know the events in Ottawa are upsetting. Still, we're asking people to stop calling critical emergency and operational phone lines to express displeasure about the police action to remove an unlawful assembly downtown. So the, the, the people are jamming the switchboard to tell the police exactly what they think of them. And I think that gives me a good deal of hope. Um, final thing I've got here on Canada, Jeffrey Tucker, one of the uh, most astute libertarian commentators from America, uh, writes, I truly cannot believe it. We have Tiananmen going on north of the border and no media, no media coverage, no real outrage, and stunning numbers of people don't care in the slightest bit. I recall being amazed that the Chinese Communist Party got away with it in 1989. Now I get it. Yes. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you both for that. Um, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, that would be very much appreciated. Um, also, do share our material 
uh, on the various uh, platforms that we're still on. Uh, that would be appreciated as well. Uh, and I'd just like to say thank you very much to all the Doctors for COVID Ethics team uh, for Friday night's uh, uh, symposium. Uh, the uh, recording of that is on the UK Column website at the moment if you want to see it. And we'll have uh, uh, individual uh, edits of each of the presentations separate for people to share uh, shortly. And the recording on the website is perfect. Uh, yes, I should mention for a number of people in various parts of the world, we're having problems with the, uh, the stream from Rumble. So we apologize for that. It was beyond our control. Uh, and uh, if you didn't, or you were having trouble watching on Friday night, uh, do watch the recording because that's, uh, that's perfect. Um, and uh, well, let's move on then. Uh, here's the BBC this morning. Uh, COVID, living with COVID plan will restore freedom, says Boris Johnson. Uh, well, this was all very unfortunate because uh, at, uh, very early in the morning, uh, this morning there was a press release went out from uh, number 10, uh, which was describing what was going to be in the Living with COVID plan. We'll come on to that in one second. Uh, but a, an hour or so later, or at least by the time I came into the office, unfortunately, that press release was no longer there. Uh, and indeed, the, uh, the cabinet meeting that was supposed to be taking place to discuss this and the, uh, therefore the uh, announcement in Parliament uh, has been delayed for some reason. We don't know why. Uh, but a lot of people asking, well, what is Chris Whitty and uh, Patrick Vallance saying about it? So there seems to be still some ongoing discussion about exactly what form this is going to be take, but none is going to take. But nonetheless, let's have a look at what uh, Boris was saying about it. Uh, here he is. He said, uh, COVID will not suddenly disappear and we need to learn to live with this virus and continue to protect ourselves without restricting our freedoms. He says, uh, we've built up strong protection against this virus over the last two years. Uh, through the vaccine rollouts, tests, new treatments, and the best scientific understanding of what this virus can do. So that's uh, the, the uh, narrative that he's uh, pushing out. But let's see what the UK Gov path to freedom is. Uh, surveillance systems and contingency measures will be retained uh, to stand up if needed, such as increased testing capacity or vaccine programs to respond to new variants. So if anybody thinks that anything has gone away or is going away, uh, you are mistaken, and uh, it would be a very risky thing at this point to um, sit down again and go back home and not uh, continue resisting this whole thing because it hasn't gone anywhere. It will be retained. Uh, lockdowns and other non-pharmaceutical interventions were necessary to save lives and protect the NHS, uh, but they took a significant toll on lives and livelihoods. So were they there to save lives or to take a significant toll on lives? I'm not really sure, but anyway, that was... That was the narrative. But the question is, did it protect the NHS? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. Uh, as we have headlines like this in the Daily Mail over the weekend, we, where have all our GPs gone? A critical shortage of local doctors is driving desperate patients to NE with crippling impact on wards. Uh, now this investigation exposes the troubling truth behind the crisis and they talk about it and so on, but not really getting to the truth at all. Nonetheless, it, it's an accurate enough headline because GPs are nowhere to be seen for most people. Um, and, uh, and of course, this is putting massive pressure on the NHS. So did it protect the NHS? Don't think so. Uh, let's move on. The government and its advisors were clear from the start that vaccines were our way out of this pandemic. Uh, vaccines, testing and public health guidance map meant we were able to complete our roadmap to unlocking England in 2021. Uh, really? Okay. Uh, but they go on to say that uh, these are the key uh, directions they want to go. They want to remove uh, regulations and requirements while emphasizing public health advice in line with long-standing methods of managing a range 
of infectious diseases. So they threw away those long-standing methods of managing a range of infectious diseases. Now they're bringing back those long-standing methods of managing a range of infectious diseases, but only after the damage to the economy, the damage to the NHS, the damage to people's mental health, uh, and the damage to uh, a whole range of uh, aspects of people. children's education is another one, for example. Once now that, that damage has been done, we can go back to those long-standing methods of managing a range of infectious diseases, they claim, uh, protecting the vulnerable through pharmaceutical interventions and testing in line with other viruses is what they're uh, talking about. So only protecting the vulnerable, not a blanket protection as they have been doing for the last two years is what they claim is the path to freedom. Uh, maintaining resilience against future variants with ongoing surveillance capabilities, because of course all that stuff that they built in the last two years, although it is appearing to be uh, switched off at the moment, is being maintained, ready to be stood up at any, mo any moment in time once the ongoing surveillance capabilities say that it needs to be re-stood up. Uh, and securing innovations and opportunities from the COVID response, uh, because while uh, the small biz, small and medium-sized businesses have been decimated around the country. Of course, some of the things like AI, uh, like uh, uh, um, DNA profiling and all this kind of stuff, these types of businesses are going to be uh, receiving massive bungs from the government uh, to build them up over the next couple of years. Bungs so massive, Mike, that I don't think most people are going to be able to grasp the sums of money that are going to be put into the genomics industry and AI and uh, biosensors. It's truly astonishing. Yes. Now, we're still receiving emails uh, with respect to the Human Rights Act reform, a modern bill of rights. Uh, now, if you want to see our coverage of that, I think it was the 2nd of February. It was the main coverage of that. If you want to have a look at that uh, episode of the UK Column News, uh, the uh, cons consultation on this is open until the 8th of March. So we're going to keep reminding people about this. If you haven't uh, taken part in this consultation and you would like to, uh, it's only until the 8th of March that you have the opportunity. The uh, URL for that is at the bottom of the screen. Um, do make your opinions known if you think it is appropriate. Um, where does that take us, David? Ireland. Ireland. Well, just after all of that, um, your government propaganda on COVID, this is well just to have a quick, a quick look at the stats, the reality. This is Graham Neely in Ireland uh, writing his restrictions. Restrictions in Ireland are finally lifted. Here's your reminder that excess deaths during the so-called pandemic have been close to zero despite thousands of COVID-related deaths. Future generations won't know whether to laugh or cry at our collective stupidity. And the graph is the death uh, rate for 75-plus aged people in Ireland. Right? So this is the most vulnerable part of the community. And you see... The deaths, the deaths here from 1901 to the present date, falling fairly steadily. So the, the, the health of the, uh, uh, the, the elderly population is getting steadily better. And the pandemic years highlighted in red look, well, normal. Uh, they do indeed. Um, so, Katie Joe, uh, at the Munich Security Conference, uh, we had... Uh, uh, Bill Gates, of course, uh, taking part. So, we did. So where are we starting with this? We did. I had to share um, these because, yet again, it's hard to believe the words that are actually coming out of this man's mouth. Um, the first video clip um, had uh, was tweeted by a Dr. Hohenderkamp, um, who's a doctor, mum, nurse, uh, N sorry, NHS uh, GP uh, for talk radio. 
Um, and uh, you can see she's also supporting Jobs Over Jabs, that campaign as well. Um, but in this first video, he's openly admitting that the Omicron variant has pipped the vaccine to the posts. Um, and today there are more vaccines than the demand for vaccines. Um, what he says is, sadly, the virus itself, particularly Omicron, is a type of vaccine. It creates both B and T cell immunity and has done a better job getting it out there to the world population than we have with, have with vaccines. Sadly, sadly, people have managed to gain natural immunity. Um, that's our innate natural immunity we've been talking about when we say we would rather trust our bodies than a toxic cocktail of poison that carry, you know, side effects, uh, life changing and deadly side effects. Um, so well, well, let's 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 let's, let's, let's listen watch to that. it. Yeah. yeah. To kick off, actually, and get a bit of a scene center from Mr. Gates, because this is, I know, a topic that you've spoken on again and again. You were ahead of the curve prior to the beginning of this pandemic. Where would you assess where we are today in beating COVID-19? Well, the, uh, you know, sadly, the virus itself, particularly the, the variant called Omicron, uh, is a type of vaccine. That is, it creates both B cell and T cell immunity. And it's done a better job of getting out to the world population uh, than we have with vaccines. If you do uh, sero surveys in African countries, you get well over 80% of people uh, have been exposed either to the vaccine or uh, to various variants. And so, you know, what that does is it means the chance of severe disease, which is mainly associated with being elderly and uh, having obesity or diabetes, those risks are now dramatically reduced because of that uh, infection exposure. And you know, it's sad. We didn't do a great job on therapeutics. You know, only here, two years in, do we have a, a good therapeutic. Uh, vaccines, it took us two years to be in oversupply. Today, there are more vaccines than there's demand for vaccines. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't true. And next time we should try and make it, instead of two years, we should make it more like six months, uh, which certainly, uh, you know, some of the standardized platform approaches, including mRNA, would allow us to do that. So, you know, it, it took us a lot longer this time than, than it should have. Yeah, and he's basically saying, isn't he, that next time it'll be like that. We'll have the vaccine straight away, you'll all be jabbed up, and we don't have to worry about natural immunity anymore. Well, that's, that's the 100 days. Yeah. That's the 100 day plan where they've said they're going to make it 100 days by simply ditching all of the safety testing. That's not words yeah. out of my mouth. That's on the documents talking about Bill Gates, his World Health Organization's 100 day mission plan. But he was he was clearly extremely disappointed that they haven't managed to deploy all the vaccines that they had uh, purchased. Um, and that uh, people have managed to uh, build immunity to it before uh, they were able to do that. So, so he's a sad man. Uh, but uh, here we've got uh, striking evidence uh, of COVID vaccine failure. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, this. This is from um, an article by Vasco Kolmeyer. 
Um, he is looking at a website called The Exposé, which presents eye-opening evidence, he says, of vaccine failure in England, using the numbers reported by the British government via its public health arm called the UK Health Security Agency. Um, the UK HSA uh, publishes a weekly vaccine surveillance report. Each report contains four weeks worth of data on COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths by vaccination status. So if we look at the first chart on the slide, it depicts COVID cases, case rates per 100,000 people for three groups. You've got unvaccinated in the green, you've got double vaccinated in the red and triple vaccinated in the maroon. Um, the chart shows that those that have been jabbed with the COVID vaccine are much likely to contract COVID-19. The double vaccinated with the highest rate, followed by the triple vaccinated. Um, and he says in the article, do you remember when they were claiming that it was the uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated? This was never true. If anything, now it's more a pandemic of the vaccinated. And that's just like I said before when I was talking about vaccinated, vaccinations. It's exactly like the pandemic of polio in India now. It's, yes, it's, I'm, it's I'm just sorry. a vaccine induced strain. Sorry, if we could just put that graphic back on screen again. Katie, Joe, the key point here is that, that, that those graphs are showing uh, cases rate per 100,000. So this is normalizing for the differences between uh, those who are vaccinated, the, the numbers of those who are vaccinated and the numbers that are unvaccinated. Right, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, you've, got, you've got the second graph there as well, which is it's even more you know, um, chilling, really, when you look at it. Um, because you can see that cohorts above 50, um, the vast majority of deaths occur in the vaccinated in the double jabbed. So the double jabbed are in red and the unvaccinated are in green. Um, he does go on to say, actually, in the article, though, that vaccines do provide some level of protection against death in the first few months. Then it wanes dramatically and turns negative, um, making people more vulnerable to um, infection and death. Um, and he says the only way of, presenting th of preventing this is by having a booster at least every three months. Um, and there's just no way that can go on indefinitely because evidence shows that repeated mRNA injections weaken the human immune system to the point of destruction. You know, there's evidence on that. So it just, it just can't keep going on. You just can't keep having boosters. It's, you know, it's a death sentence, really. Um, it's it's awful. Um, so the, the graphs the graphs show it there. They 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 show, they have, there's the evidence for you yeah, really. Yes. It's not the unvaccinated. Yeah, David, uh, you wanted to uh, mention a little bit about this as well. Well, uh, yes, we've got some Scottish stats which which also reinforce that. Um, that's the one there. Yeah. So there we have uh, percentages of COVID-19 deaths by vac vaccination status in Scotland. This is the data that you were explaining on Friday will no longer be produced. Um, we're going to instead to have modelling uh, producing more um, high-quality data, but it's going to be mathematically modelled in future, just not the, ra the raw information. So here we see the unvaccinated are, are uh, represent something like 15% of all the, the COVID-19 deaths in Scotland. Uh, and that's a smaller percentage than they represent for the whole population. Uh, this next chart uh, shows it normalised based on deaths per 100,000 of the population. And you see for um, all of the time periods uh, concerned, and, it's, and it becomes even more dramatic than the more recent ones, the fully vaccinated 
are dying in greater numbers at a higher rate than the unvaccinated. And that graph alone suggests there's something seriously wrong with the vaccination programme. Yes. OK, let's move on to Austria then. So Austria um, was famously uh, mandating that all of its citizens must be jabbed, uh, no exceptions, or there would be fines and imprisonment. Uh, this is uh, the local Austria's News and English reports. Austria establishes a commission to decide on mandatory COVID jabs. Just weeks after the, na the nationwide COVID vaccine mandate was signed into law, the controversial measure is in jeopardy. So it's been re-examined. The narrative is falling apart. Indeed. And uh, well, Katie Joe, let's uh, move back to the Munich Security Conference and, and Bill Gates again. And uh, well, he was, yeah. asked about, he was asked about masks. Yeah, he was asked about masks. Um, he was asked, what about masks? I think there are a lot of people in America that are confused about whether they need to wear a mask or not. Um, and his reply, um, I've got a, a slide there with it, and we've also got the clip. Um, his well, let's, let's, is... let's, just watch, let's just watch the clip. Great. What about masks? I think there are a lot of people in America who are confused about whether they should be wearing a mask. And in the United Kingdom, for example, they've scrapped that altogether. Well, that's interesting. You know, what is the downside of wearing a mask? I mean, it's got to be tough. You know, you have to wear pants. Uh, I mean, this is tough stuff. These societies are so cruel. Why do they make you wear pants? I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> We're very glad you have yours on. Um, uh, that will be on the web. Uh -oh. That will be on the web. <laughs> well. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out and make sense of what he's just said. I can't, I can't make sense of it. It's the oddest answer. None of them are wearing masks. And it, that doesn't make any sense as to why somebody should wear a mask. If Katie that is Joe, as an answer to anyone, I just, I, I can't even. Yeah, Katie know. Joe, I'm going to suggest it's cognitive dissonance. Basically, he can't cope. He can't cope with the question because he knows that he doesn't have an answer. And in the confusion in his head, the dissonance, he, he makes up a rubbish answer. This is breakdown. You're witnessing breakdown in this man, I, I believe. Um, so that brings us to BBC Media Action. It brings us uh, straight back to BBC Media Action. And people are going to wonder why. Well, let's have a look at this, because this is what BBC Media Action is doing alongside their work in taking over communications in Ukraine. Here we have five mantras, that's their words, five mantras for effective COVID-19 vaccine communication. This was produced by, uh, by Media Action, BBC Media Action on Friday, the 27th of November uh, 2020. Uh, but we're getting, we're getting a real insight into uh, what they were doing here. It said, I've just taken this as a quote, well-designed communications can increase healthy behaviours, including vaccine uptake. We've just seen the madman in, in a video on screen. And now we can see BBC Media Action, apparently a charity um, using behavioural psychology to increase vaccine uptake. Here are our five mantras for how to think about COVID-19 vaccine communications. Um, this is Yvonne McPherson. She's the director of BBC Media Action USA. She's the one who figures in this particular section. Um, it says that Yvonne designed and managed, quote, behaviour change communication initiatives on HIV AIDS. 
material and child health, gender equality and livelihoods, amongst others. This lady, we don't really know anything about her. She's changing the way whole societies in nation states think, and she's ensuring that you take more of Bill Gates' vaccines. Uh, these are the mantras. Get ahead of the challenge. We need to act now. News about the vaccine is everywhere. People are already forming opinions and sharing their views. There's much anticipation, expectation, um, and anxiety. If we wait to do the preparation required to produce effective campaigns around vaccination, it may be too late. And uh, we need a greater understanding of vaccine hesitancy. This is all about applied psychology. If we go to number two, their mantra is this science is going to need some art and craft. Well, I'm going to suggest if you're using art and craft, it isn't a science in the first place. Um, but uh, at the end of this, it talks about creating strategies and execution, the art and craft of effective communications, dialogue, not preaching, socio-cultural insights, big ideas, stories, storytellers. And then it ends with this, we need to disrupt. So this is getting into societies, destroying people's ability to function and to use common sense in their decision making. All of this under the guise of a charity. So I hope the audience from Ukraine is also paying attention to this section. Here's mantra three. This global problem requires a local shot in the arm, but vaccine decisions are personal. And then it's saying that co communication for behavior change has to be made by and with the people. It's trying to reach rich in cultural insights and psychosocial nuances. This is political applied psychology. Change the way you think and behave. You won't even know it's been done to you. You just see the collapse in society. Here's mantra four, information is everywhere. We need a whole eco, excuse me, ecosystem approach. And the end sentence says, if we need to shift behaviors, we, we need to reach people in multiple ways too. Uh, sorry, if we seek to shift behaviors, we need to reach people in mul multiple ways too. But the admission in the text is that they're shifting behaviors. So this is the malicious use of applied psychology to promote vaccines. And let's remind people in that funding diagram that we had that whopping uh, nearly 1.6 million coming in from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to fund this. This isn't a charity, Mike. No. This is, it's political, but here it is acting as a poodle for Bill Gates and his uh, vaccine policy. It's so disgusting. It's almost difficult to know how, how to report it properly. Um, okay, look, David, we're out of time. So out of the two or three topics that you've got left uh, uh, in the list, uh, would you like to choose one to cover now? Yeah, let's do the next one on the list. Okay, let's go ahead then. Right, so this next, this, this next section is on the normalization of paedophilia. Uh, the first clip is uh, Brett uh, Weinstein. He's former professor of uh, biology at Evergreen State College, uh, famously hounded out of the college for speaking the truth uh, and not being woke enough. Um, he's uh, discussing here the issue of uh, the normalization of paedophilia and the encouragement of this by the political left. It's a terrible question. 
what's the deal with the left and pedophilia? Mm. From pro-pedo articles to MAPS, that's an acronym standing for Minor Attracted Person, which is a euphemism, cover-ups, apologia, I never know how to pronounce that word, etc. It's an alarming correlation. Furthermore, I predict trans and non-binary will soon be eclipsed by a push for its pedophilia's acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a complete disaster. Yes. Those who have predicted that this would arise have been correct. The scope of it is quite scary. And maybe most scary of all is the fact that this is now, as the question implies, being taken seriously. Now, um, uh, Brett Weinstein went on to um, highlight uh, a, a blog post um, by a blogger called uh, Holly Mathnerd. Now, this person has written a blog called uh, On the Push to Destigmatize Evil, Why Pedophilia Must Never Be Normalized. Uh, this, this lady, Holly, ha is, a, is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, knows of which she speaks, uh, and it's a hard-hitting but very, very informative blog piece. Uh, one, one extract I have here, uh, we are normalising paedophilia at warp speed. A noticeable number of people, large and growing, have accepted a narrative that there's such a thing as a paedophile who is a victim of a terrible injustice. He is born with a sexual orientation that cannot be legally acted upon and so must suffer all his life from loneliness and societal stigma. Uh, a version of this narrative turned up in my email box days before I published this essay. Uh, just a discussion on Twitter that this piece would be uh, coming cause someone who has swallowed the narrative entirely uh, and become an advocate for the abolition of age of consent laws to write to me. He wrote arguing that, quote, child sexual abuse, end quote, is a pseudo-scientific concept. It does not exist. There's no such a thing. Intergenerational relationships are positive. That person believes he has taken a morally defensible stand. That's key. Uh, now, to illustrate where this is going, here we have the Jewish voice uh, reporting on a professor in America um, who says, even with a one-year-old, S-U-N-Y, uh, Fredonia reviewing the professor after he defends pedophilia. Um, Professor says uh, that an adult wanting to have sex with a kid is, ex is accepted as being wrong, but it is not obvious to me that it is in fact wrong. So he's, he's pushing back at this. There's the very famous uh, TED talk, which, uh, which advocate, which is very pro-pedophilia um, uh, by um, a young lady um, whose name momentarily escapes me, Oya Miriam Heine. Heine, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. Um, and then we have uh, Noah Berlatsky, uh, Opladia here. Meet Noah Bl Bl uh, Berlatsky, the, the Rutgers University press published author working hard to normalize pedophilia. Uh, I've got some tweets from Noah Berlatsky here. Uh, pedophiles are essentially a stigmatized group. Certain people get des designated as deviants, people hate them. Uh, he also says, Parents are tyrants. Parent is an oppressive class, like rich people or white people. There are things you can do to try and minimize the abuse that's endemic to the parent-child relationship, but it's always there. So this is the extreme left, attack the family narrative. 
he also goes on to say, uh, fash, by which he means fascists, love accusing people of paedophilia. It's an explosive accusation linked historically to queer people and Jewish people and sex workers. And also because they know using the term doesn't actually reduce violence and the abuse of power, which they like. Rambling nonsense. He's part of the Pro Protasia Foundation. So this is uh, their values advertised here. We don't quite know why it's always a pyramid, but it always seems to be. Um, and the Protasia then go on to say um, that one of the things they want to do is explore the use of fictional and fantasy sexual outlets. Uh, so they're, collabor they're collaborating with Dr. Julian Tenbergen from the State University of New York uh, and Dr. Uh, Craig Harper from Nottingham Trent University in the UK on research into the use of fictional or fantasy sectional outlets, e.g. dolls, cartoons and fictional stories amongst people who have sexual attractions to children. I would put it to you, this is going to make things much, much worse. Um, these sex dolls are being imported into the UK. The Liverpool Echo here reporting UK charity slam for suggesting child sex dolls should be free on prescription for paedophiles. Stop Soul was accused of normalising paedophilia after the chairman said it could help an individual remain law-abiding. Uh, children's charities condemned the idea and the National Crime Agency called for the dolls to be criminalised. Um, and we finished this piece with um, another survivor of horrific childhood sexual abuse, Cathy O'Brien. Um, she she has uh, been on the record since 1992 about the abuse. She's written two books uh, which name names and she's never been sued. She names names amongst the highest levels of the political establishment in, in the United States and elsewhere, and she's never been sued. Um, she's been entirely credible. She's been consistent for over 30 years with her story. Uh, and speaking to um, other survivors of child sexual abuse, and uh, Satanist ritual abuse, the information that she communicates about how to heal, uh, I know from their testimony is absolutely correct. So I feel she's a very credible source. And I, I put that preamble in before the next bit because this takes us back to Canada. This um, relates to her abuse, um, as she states, at the hands of Pierre Trudeau. One of my sexual abusers at that time was the Prime Minister of Canada, Pierre Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau is a professed Jesuit. Now the Jesuits are an intelligence arm of the Catholic Vatican. There's a criminal faction within these Jesuits. I'm certainly not saying all Catholics are bad, nor am I saying all CIA is bad or all politicians. There's good and bad in everything. But nevertheless, Pierre Trudeau represented this criminal faction of the, the Catholic Church, of the Jesuits, who believed in mind control of the masses because they wanted to be the one world church in the new world order. The money that was being brought in through the church was funding new world order controls. And he firmly believed in mind control. So we see the nature of um, the left um, they're, they're, uh, tend to be very pro-pedophile. Uh, they tend to be um, very interested in the mass control uh, by uh, various means of the mind control of the masses and the um, development of the state and the reduction of the individual. Um, there are links here 
um, links to control, uh, links to abuse, and we're seeing them in Canada on a massive scale, and we're seeing them in the uh, normalization of paedophilia on an individual but equally tragic scale. And uh, these ideas, I feel, are related and um, need to be viewed as a whole. Yeah, okay. just add to that, and of course, that's uh, uh, what the whole investigation around uh, former Prime Minister Ted Heath was about in the United Kingdom, for which a very brave senior policeman, Mike Veal, was trampled underfoot by the establishment when he started to say that there should be further investigations into the uh, evidence that had come forward. Uh, one final slide to end with, David, uh, explain this one. Okay. Canadian policeman comes back to his little child who's delighted to see him. Welcome back, Dad. What did you do today? And he says, I beat innocent people asking for freedom. I think that sums things up pretty well. It does. Well, we need to end there. We're going to say a big thank you to everybody who's joined us, particularly those who've come in from distance overseas. Uh, we love having you. Please uh, send us information, share the information that UK Column is putting out. And of course, we must say that we can only do what we do with the financial help and support of our viewers and subscribers. So thank you to everyone who's helping keep us going at the moment. And of course, our intention is to expand further uh, because times say that we need to get out the truth and the facts about what's really happening. Okay, we'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream for some extra. We will see you then. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.